Welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us. Today on the show, I have Terry Ritchie, previous guest and uh, my go-to guru on uh, cross-border, all things American-Canadian cross-border and a personal friend. Terry is a vice president and partner at Cardinal Point Capital, Cardinal Point Wealth Management, which is a cross-border RIA slash ICPM firm that specializes specifically in this space. And I brought him on the show to talk about what's changed since the last time we had him on roughly two years ago. And uh, just a recap of some of the major points of consideration for anyone who's an American citizen living in Canada when it comes to planning for their financial life. And with that, here's my interview with Terry. Terry, good sir. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Great. Thanks for having me again. Always a pleasure as well. So Terry, tell us a little bit about what it is you do. So I'm a partner in uh, Cardinal Point Capital, which is the Canadian entity, and and Cardinal Point Wealth, which is on the U.S. side, the RIA side. So we are the largest cross-border wealth management firm, I guess, in Canada and the U.S. So we manage about a billion and a a billion six of assets for clients uh, scattered uh, in Canada and the U.S. We've grown quite a bit over the last number of years, which has been awesome. And we've got a lot of new colleagues. So there's a little bit over 30 of us now within the practice. And uh, my responsibility as one of the private wealth managers is to work with typically private clients, individuals that have cross-border issues uh, on either side of the border. And that may be investment related. It may be tax, estate planning. But all of us do comprehensive Canada U.S. financial planning, and many of us live this lifestyle in some manner or form. I live in Phoenix and in and, and Calgary, and go back and forth, and have a number of colleagues that also have uh, residences in, in both jurisdictions as well. So, so these issues apply to us, and so we can relate those experiences that we have to consider as, as part of the planning process for the clients that we work with. And so we've got an equal number of clients, probably you know, Canadians that uh, that move back to Canada. I'm sorry, that move back to Canada from the U.S. or or again Americans that move up to Canada. Snowbirds. Um, we have a lot of situations where we have uh, U.S. beneficiaries that inherit wealth from mom and dad in Canada that become angels or those kinds of things. So anything that's cross-border related, we, we typically get involved with. So you've been on the show before. Uh, you were gracious enough to give me your time back then and gracious enough to agree to do this again. So I wanted to talk about, first and foremost, that was roughly about two years ago. I think it was, was it pre-pandemic. It was sometime around it was, there. It, it, was, it was around. It certainly was prior to President Biden coming in play, I guess. Oh, that's for sure. That's for sure. So basically, I wanted to talk about what's what's changed for Americans living in Canada when it comes to their planning based off of, well, just what's happened in both countries. So what's new and exciting is what it comes down to. <laughs> new and exciting. Well, the stock market's pretty crazy. Um, you know, there's uh, folks that have obviously have been impacted uh, globally, but certainly in Canada, the US related to that. We've got inflation as a factor. So you know, revisiting retirement modeling and that kind of stuff. What numbers and assumptions do you use um, given where inflation's at and things like that? I think the, the biggest changes in, and my colleague, uh, our chief investment officer, Matt Carvalho and I did a, a webinar for our clients prior to the election where we were talking about some of the, the implications that were proposed by, by Trump at the time, and certainly more so by Biden related to gift income and estate tax considerations. And so there's some pretty, uh, pretty onerous and yucky proposals that, uh, that, were, that, were, that, were, that were thrown out there. And so there was certainly some concern around what kind of planning might uh, you know affluent Americans, whether they be in Canada or the US, consider to, to utilize prior to the estate tax exemptions or gifting limits changing or whatever. Um, and of course, the income tax rates were 
looking to go up. And there was some concern about uh, additional surtaxes for uh, wealth over a million dollars, that kind of stuff. So all that stuff didn't happen and it ain't going to happen. Well, the midterm's so, coming up. So how's it going? That's right. It ain't going to happen. Let's spend a piece here. Like I want to get the one key difference between Canada and the U.S. that I find staggeringly shocking and an easier system than a state tax. So it has to do with the um, with basically the bump up in cost base that occurs on death. So unlike Canada, where when you second, well, if you don't, if you die and leave things and not not a spouse, you basically have to pay. It's all realize all the taxes are due. Whereas in the U.S., it's not the same. So what what happens there when when someone dies and there's a deferred capital gain? What happens? So, I mean, that you're you're better off certainly dying from an income tax perspective in the U.S. than in Canada I today. I mean, there there have been proposals that were made a number of years ago that related to sort of removing this estate tax based on value. So, one of the things that we have in the U.S. is when you become an angel, it's a true value tax. The thing that's kind of unique is that most of the folks who in prior years would have been exposed to this significant estate tax, lots of those folks are now off the rolls because the estate tax exemptions have, have creeped up over the years and are at now significant levels. So right now, the estate tax exemption is $12.06 million. So for a married couple, that's just a little over $24 million. Um, so to the extent that a married couple's estate is not worth more than $24 million bucks and they become an angel no value tax that would, would come into play here. And then in terms of what the beneficiaries ultimately receive is there's a stepping up of that cost basis at the time of death. So an example I've often used with, with clients is let's say my father bought some stock in a company at zero and he dies and he's got an unrealized capital gain on that specific position of, uh, let's say it's worth $10 million. You bought it for nothing. And the unrealized gain is $10 million. And my dad decides to become an angel one day. And I'm the sole beneficiary of that wealth. So what's the benefit that we derive here? Well, one, because the value of his estate, let's assume that's the only thing he has is not worth more than 12.06 million bucks. Again, no estate tax. So we have to worry about the government getting 40% of that, that dollar. And then Terry, me goes mm -hmm. ahead and inherits this wealth. And guess what my basis is in that thing? $10 million, that whole $10 yep. million unrealized gain, gone. And we know that's not going to be the case in Canada. So if my dad was a Canadian resident, but a dual citizen, for example, different story here. So I've had situations where you sort of look at clients and say, are you better off from an income tax perspective dying in Canada or the US? Or what can you do? I had one client years ago where we looked at, because of the value of, his, um, of some of his retirement plans that were US-based in Canada, you know, going back and dying in the U.S. so that we wouldn't have this, you know, ordinary income tax that could be imposed in Canada as we do on, on, on RSPs and other kinds of things. So it is a unique situation. Now, that being said, we are in an uncertain environment. We talked earlier about the midterms. And again, I think that Joe's not going to get very far with any of his policies because of what's going to maybe happen in, in November. So, but one of the things that when this legislation was passed under the Trump uh, administration a number of years ago, many of these tax changes are going through a process that we call sunset. We had this back in when, yeah. when Bush was president as well. So effectively, the way it was passed means that in 10 years after it was passed, it, it sunsets back to the original sort of guidelines, the, the original laws that were existence, or they're inflation adjusted. So for example, right now, 
unless nothing has changed in the gift and estate rules and, and other, other tax rules that were put into play here. At the end of 2025, so the beginning of 2026, the estate and gift tax exemptions and, and income tax rates will go back to what they were 10 yeah. years ago. Estate tax exemptions would be inflation adjusted. So there's going to be somewhere around the, the six or $7 million range that it would have come back. It's certainly a lot better than what that Senator Warren and, and Bernie wanted, which is like $1, but yeah. three and a half to $5 million is what they've been proposing. Yeah, I do find it amusing how bent out of shape people get over this concept of the estate tax, given almost no one pays it. That's true. Like one of the things I've often, I've been doing this for 35 years and there's a lot of, let's just poke, pick on snowbirds for a bit of time here. So, you know, snowbirds or non-residents in the United States have a non-resident estate tax that's imposed on them if they own certain kinds of what are defined as U.S. situs assets. Most common type of, of asset that snowbirds or non-residents have Canadians in the U.S. would have would be real property, you know, their vacation home, their rental property that they own personally. And in the past, because where the estate tax exemptions were at, there's a lot of thought around how should we own it? Should we hold it jointly, personally, throw it in a trust, set up a corporation, those kinds of things. And there's pros and cons around each of those. And we've got an article on our blog site that sort of goes over that. And there's a number of other practitioners that have got some great papers and articles related to that as well. So we go through this exercise of trying to complicate clients' lives because of this, this potential for estate tax exposure. But at the end of the day, I think in my 35 years of practice, I maybe have had three clients out of the hundreds and hundreds yeah, I've served that have become angels. Because what happens is typically if a couple owns property in the US and one of them dies, the likelihood of maybe the surviving spouse either selling the property and come back to Canada or whatever is, 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 is greater. That doesn't mean that you don't want to take that into consideration, but the likelihood of people dying and having exposure has been pretty, pretty small. Pretty but, but as a practitioner, we have to be aware of that because it's always been a moving target. Right now, it's not a big deal for the majority of the Canadians own property in the U.S., or for majority of anybody who who's, doesn't have a state worth more than 24 million bucks. But we have to, our job as planners in the US 12 is always be aware of these implications in both right. Canada and US and, and plan accordingly. Well, and let's talk about one important facet that a lot of people take for granted. And that's that basically a Canadian citizen who's never been American could potentially find themselves subject to US estate tax as well. So yes. um, speak to me about how that happens. So because again, the estate tax exemptions are so high for the majority of, of, of clients that advisors will be speaking to, at the end of the day, it'll be a nil result or a no result. But here's the problem for the Canadian, the traditional Canadian. And it, it could be, I, I make the I used to make the joke that you have a Canadian that's that's been, we have Canadian here. I'm in Calgary today, so here's here. And uh, they've never been to Las Vegas to see Donnie Marie, but yet they happen to own, it's now Donnie only apparently, <laughs> um, but they happen to own uh, greater than $60,000 of US shares. Let's say it's Microsoft, for example, okay? They've never been to the U.S., never have any, any intention to go to the U.S., but they become an angel that day. Because the shares are worth more than $60,000, there will be a requirement for that, for the executor on behalf of the estate to file a non-resident estate tax return. So we know that because if the worldwide estate of the decedent is less than $12.06 million U.S., there'll be no estate tax. But to get to that result is a pain in the butt because- mm -hmm. The transfer agent or the compliance officers, the back office of the firm that the shares are at are going to say, listen, we're not going to distribute these shares until we get a clearance letter from the IRS, which takes a long time. The last one I did, which was three years ago, took yeah. two years to get for the estate. And so what, what you have to do is when you file the non-resident estate tax return is you include the, it's a 706 NA, but along with that goes the will. Along with that, you have to go ahead and provide a statement of the decedent's worldwide estate. They need to know the value of the client's RSP or RIF. 
the value of the non-rich assets, the value of any real property they have here, any businesses, if they have instances of ownership of life insurance, the face, all that has to get, get in there. And we know at the end of the day, it's going to be a nil result. So when you get over that $60,000 threshold, you have the filing requirement for U.S. purposes, and it can be a pain in the butt. And it's yeah. costly too. Well, yeah. And again, well, I will say very high net worth people can actually have to pay, can actually but, be submitted to it, right? It's yeah. a proportion. That yeah. 24 million doesn't fully apply to them, right? It's a proportion of their of their overall global holding. So I'll let you, I'll let you speak to that. Yeah, it, it's true. I mean, the, the, actually the, the, the last one I did, which, which took again, two years, because I don't have a lot of folks becoming angels on me, no COVID deaths in the last couple of years. This was a younger guy. He died tragically and he happened, he was a non-resident. He happened to have over $3 million of assets that he'd left in the US. The advisor down there played some games and used the US address, things like that. Mm. So he became an, yeah, he became an angel. And so there was, in his case, there was a state tax to be paid. So we quantified that. We went ahead and submitted an extension, paid the estate tax. But in terms of the assets could not be released to the family members until we got the clearance certificate. And again, that took two years to get. And again, those assets were frozen. So if the market goes up and down, those assets go up and down as well. We value the estate based on the, the, the fair market value of the assets as of the date of death. But those assets can go up and down until things are, are, are resolved. So it, it can be it can be an administrative burden that, uh, that can be uh, timely and, and, and costly. So it is, it is burdensome. Now there are ways around that, right? I mean, there are, so what people don't realize is that it's not just stock. It can also be Canadian-based mutual funds and ETFs that qualify as U.S. assets, right? Well, generally, so in Canada, lots of ways to get around that is as you would use Canadian-based ETFs that invest in U.S. shares. Mm-hmm. If you've got a Canadian mutual fund or a Canadian-based ETF that invests in those U.S. shares, they're not considered situs. They're not domiciled in the U.S., so therefore you're not going to have a U.S. estate tax exposure. But you know, when we look at planning, some of the things that the advisors aren't aware of is that you might go ahead and, and structure their investment portfolio to invest in U.S. shares through ETFs or Canadian-based mutual funds. But then they may have this. They might just have this couple shares of of outside stock, or let's say their company stock that happens to be U.S. domiciled. Yep. That can throw them out of whack here. So again, whenever you're over that sixty thousand dollar threshold. That's sort of your barometer here to determine whether there's going to be a filing requirement or not. Again, there may not be a state tax at the end of the day, but there may be that requirement to file to prove that you had no state tax before those shares can be released. For a lot of clients, again, I use the expression, I don't want to complicate your life any more than it already is. And sometimes practitioners, typically lawyers and accountants, will go ahead and suggest you know, setting up a holding company as a means to own U.S. shares. Again, because of the, the right ownership of shares. I mean, literally, there's easier ways yeah, to do it. But it's a greater administrative burden. You've got integration rules in Canada and the U.S. that, that the corporate and personal side that may not make that as compelling as it was in the past. So again, we use a comprehensive approach looking at the big picture here and then making the decision from, from, from there. But it can be a surprise for people thinking, oh, I'm going to invest in some Tesla directly or some Disney. Disney, And then somebody becomes an angel and it happens to be worth $60,000. Then we've got some that's some splaining to do to the IRS. Absolutely. Basically, so not a lot has changed, but there is some, we're definitely going to see a sunsetting at this point unless they find, unless, you know, there's a government turnover and they choose to extend these rules so that we know that that's not, you know, actually I'm surprised it is that early. I forgot it was going to be as soon as 2025. So uh, it's not far off. So there is going to be a need for some potential planning. If anyone's exposed to state tax to do that, you know, now before, before it gets it's too late. So that's the changes. Let's talk about um, some of the more table stakes stuff or the common things on this might be nothing new in these categories, but just a reminder of some of these, some of these issues or types of uh, types of accounts or ownership issues that affect Americans living in Canada. So first and foremost, my favorite one that I'm planning an article on shortly because it keeps coming up is the use of TFSAs by Americans in Canada. 
So the TFSA, the tax-free um, savings account in Canada, the closest counterpart to that from a U.S. perspective would be a Roth IRA. So many, many years ago, the U.S. created a similar type of vehicle that allows an individual to make a contribution where that contribution would grow on a tax-free basis. And then future distributions from that plan would also come out on a tax-free basis as well. There's no deduction going in as, as there would be in Canada. So in Canada, we have the TFSA. So the question often becomes, you're an American living in Canada. Should you or can you go ahead and make a contribution to a TFSA? And the answer is yes, you can. The next question is, should you? And we could argue and debate whether you should or you shouldn't. And I've given up on arguing with people about this because if you do, as if you do anything as an American in Canada, setting up a bank account, TFSA and RSP, there are additional compliance requirements that have to be dealt with on the U.S. side. So we do know that there, uh, you know, in the past, up and through uh, through March of 2020, just right the period of time when Tom Hanks got COVID, March 2020, and the whole world changed, that we got a revenue procedure out of the IRS that was kind to us, specifically those Americans in Canada that may have created uh, an RESP or an RDSP for their for children or, or whatever. So. In the past, an RESP and an RDSP and a TFSA were generally deemed by the IRS as a foreign trust. And so there are some very, they're fairly onerous filing requirements that the IRS imposed for foreign trusts. We have similar rules in Canada as well. If you have, if you're a Canadian taxpayer, the beneficiary of a trust out of the US, similar kind of disclosure rules to a certain extent. The penalties may not be as onerous as what the IRS imposed, but if you had either of those three kinds of vehicles, you had to file a form 3520 and a, fi- a, fi- a form 3520A on an annual basis. It's a fairly intimidating form, at least the 3520 is. A lot of it didn't apply to certain clients and lots of parts, lots of pages there. But effectively, if you didn't file that form on a timely basis for these vehicles, then the uh, IRS could come back and did come back and, and spank you with a penalty as high as 35% based on the value of, of what's in the trust there. So there are a lot of practitioners that thought that this was onerous and stupid and it didn't really apply. And so finally, there was some relief that was provided in in, uh, March 2020 through the revenue procedure. I think it's 2021-17, I believe, that basically said RESPs and RDSPs do not have to go through this 3520-3520 filing requirement. However, it didn't speak to TFSAs. Exactly. So if I presented six cross-border tax practitioners to you, I'd say half of them would say, it's a TFSA is not a trust. Don't worry about filing the TFS or the 3520s and 20As. And the other three would say, yeah, you should. We've taken the position we don't file the 3520 and 3520As. We file a statement with the tax return of the client, basically outlining why we believe that this should not be required to be filed as, as that. Mm-hmm. We do pick up the incomes because so the differential is if we've got a client that has a TFSA, we recognize that they're tax-free in Canada, at least on the growth side, but they're not tax-free on the U.S. side. So any income that accrues within that vehicle would be taxable on the U.S. return. So because we also manage a lot of money for clients, we for those clients that choose to go ahead, and we've talked about the pros and cons of a TFSA in Canada for an American uh, or a U.S. taxpayer, we make sure that we're tax managing that. So let's say we're using VTI or exchange-traded funds that doesn't bang up significant dividends or, or capital gain distributions. But, but even if it does, at the end of the day, in most cases, because it's U.S. federal tax rates only and Canadian integrated rates are higher, most clients who have a decent income are going to basically have more foreign tax rates in the U.S. than they can use up. So basically, the odds of them actually even paying if there are distributions are pretty slim. That is absolutely correct. The pro- What we don't know is way down, down the road, 
you know, as these things accumulate significantly, Correct. or if you being one of these guys who put it who has a TFSA and you're trading significantly in there, GameStop like Sierra coming after the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then then it's a different issue. But I've always thought that perhaps maybe somewhere down the road with there's when when CRA and and when finance and treasury get together and they re, sort of rehash the treaty, that maybe this might be a provisional throw in there. Listen, hey, they're similar. Let's go ahead and allow for relief on both sides of the border and, and life, life. I would think so. But who knows? I mean, there's other things that are more important to Treasury and finance than, than perhaps yeah. that right now. But for clients that come in, again, the question, because if your intention is to be here for quite some time and never return to the U.S., maybe we'd, we should pursue that. If you're going to go back, you're here on a short-term assignment, does it make sense to do a TFSA before you go back? Maybe not. What we've done for clients who've returned to the U.S. is we typically will wind up the TFSA, so yeah. we get rid of it, it, take the proceeds, and off they go down to the U.S. and pay the requisite tax if they're a U.S. person. Well, there's no point at that point. It's 100% tax, but just extra yeah. filing for no reason. And I, so the way I always frame this when people ask about this is it comes down to two factors for me. One, what is the account going to charge for the filing in the first place? And two, what is that as, a, as it relates to the amount of money you would invest in it? So if you're new to, to Canada, you have $6,000 worth of room, it sure as heck ain't worth it, right? Yeah. To pay like a hundred bucks for it. But now when we're getting limits that are in the 80,000s, right? If you're, if you're, if you've been here the entire time and you can max out the entire TFSA and your account's going to charge you 200 bucks to do the filing. Now we're looking at an incremental cost. That's pretty immaterial given the, the tax benefit that can be extracted from this. So again, framing it as a cost benefit is definitely a way to, to kind of get around where's the breaking point or where does the client want to make that call? But like I said, we have a, we have an article on our blog site related to this, and you said that you're writing an article too that I'll be happy to look at as well. But I think it's a matter of discussing the pros and cons with the client. I think every every situation is different. I don't think there's no there's no perfect answer. I think you'll hear a number of different um, you know, comments from a number of different practitioners. But it's something that again we don't file the 3520. And and again, you mentioned I'm not going to try to suggest how an accounting firm or an accountant should should structure their practice. But it goes back to the whole you know PFIC issues and the 3520 yeah. issues, 8621s, and things like that. Obviously, to the extent that you have that you're filing 8621s because you're going ahead and assuming that these mutual funds in Canada are all PFIX and your TFSA is has a 3520 filing requirement, the cost of that filing is going to be much greater than somebody that takes the position that. And maybe a statement should be filed, which is some of the statements, some of the some of the things that we've done within our practice. And a number of other well-respected practitioners in Canada, cross-border tax lawyers, have taken a similar position as yeah. well. So to each yeah, own. Uh, absolutely. So I mean, you know, whether they want to take the more onerous, you know, slightly more costly approach. I mean, I've seen this done for as little as hundred bucks, as much as well. I see someone trying to try, try, charge a thousand for it, but you know, usually it comes in more more reasonable. It's frankly for that immaterial cost. Let them let them decide what they're comfortable with. Clients want to assume that that's fine. So. TFSA, that takes care of TFSAs. You mentioned PFIX. We'll come back to that in a second. But let's talk about the Canada's favorite pastime, home ownership. How does that vary in Canada versus the U.S.? So the biggest differential, I think, is that um, if you're a U.S. taxpayer, a U.S. resident, U.S. citizen in Canada, and you have a home, and you bought it for a dollar and you sell it for a million dollars, we have the great benefit in Canada as a Canadian taxpayer of paying no tax on that, that appreciation. That doesn't work on the U.S. side because we are a U.S. taxpayer and therefore we have to look at U.S. rules. And so on the U.S. side, there's no full tax-free exemption related to the sale of your principal residence. However, there are, there are some exemptions. 
but you have to meet certain rules to be entitled to those exemptions. Um, effectively, what happens is you've got to have uh, lived in the home. It has to have been your principal residence for at least two out of five years. And if it has been and you're married, you're entitled to each a $250,000 capital gain exemption. So for a married couple, typically that's a half million dollars. So for example, this just this last tax season, I had a client who bought some property in Vancouver, um, sold it, moved to um, another place in Vancouver, and there was a capital gain, and the capital gain exceeded the $500,000 exemption that this married couple is entitled to take. We know that on their Canadian return, we had zero tax result. Obviously, had to report it, but a zero tax result. But we did have to pick up about $300,000 of capital gain income on the U.S. side. Now, can we take a foreign tax credit for that? Generally, no, because we didn't pay any tax in Canada on that. On yeah, that. Yeah. So there's no there was no foreign tax credit relief. And we're, we're basically able to take foreign tax credit relief on his, his employment income and some of the investment income that was sourced. But for that, the answer is no. So we basically didn't pay any income tax per se on that. Forgive me, you paid some income tax. But what was the big surprise there? The Medicare surtax, the 3.8%, the net investment income tax that was imposed on that. Because his income was, in his case, was well over $450,000. So he has the net investment income tax that kicks in on the capital gains, uh, dividends, interest, passive income, those kinds of things. So that's the big surprise. So where, from a planning perspective, what can what can be helpful there is this, this couple happen to be both Americans in Canada. But there are situations where you've got, I use the term mixed marriage. You've got a U.S. citizen married to a non-citizen spouse. So in that case, let's say that, that we had that for this couple. What could they have done there to avoid the U.S. tax? Well, what could have happened here the value of the property was, was $2 million. The U.S. citizen, the property was held jointly, but the U.S. citizen could have gifted his half interest to his non-citizen spouse. He would have had to file a gift tax return. The, the gift, uh, the annual limit this year for a U.S. citizen gifting stuff to their non-citizen spouse is $164,000. So basically anything over that number, a 709 return, a gift tax return have to be filed by him. So to file a gift tax return, he would go ahead and report that taxable gift, but his lifetime gift tax exclusion is $12.06 million. So in that case, no income tax results on that gift, and there's no gift tax result there. But now his wife completely 100% owns that property. Obviously, you have to paper it properly with a lawyer in Canada and things like that, file the gift tax return. But now who sells it? The non-citizen sells it. So yeah, therefore, definitely. if that's done, then there's not going to be any uh, income tax result on the U.S. side. So we've done that for first clients over the years when it when it made when it's made sense. But if you've got a married couple, that's not been the case. So it can be a surprise, clients, particularly for clients who live in your neck of the woods or in, in Vancouver or BC, where property values have gone up substantially. So that needs to be yeah. folks need to be aware of that. Oh yeah, we had one uh, client who bought their house in downtown Toronto, you know, prior to capital gains being a thing. Like that's how long ago they bought it. So the the uh, the gain is just monumental. They were we're going to sell and downsize. And then when we went over this issue, they were just like, well, we're not moving. <laughs> they, they couldn't bring themselves to pay that tax bill. So well, it is what it is. And it, what's, what's important there, too, is it's important for you know, clients, American clients may not keep track of their their improvements, things like that, to, to, to adjust their basis up. Right. So it's important that if you've got if you're an American in Canada, and you've got some property because there may be some tax exposure on the U.S. side when you ultimately sell it. It's good to keep track of any improvements, receipts when you did it. You have to adjust for exchange rates so that we can get that basis up 
So we can hopefully reduce that level of gain if you've got exposure beyond the half million dollar exemptions that would be available for a married couple. Excellent. So bottom line is you got tax implications, especially if you're both American. Now, one important thing to mention there is the gain is adjusted for for exchange rates. So Correct. yeah, so 500,000 in Canada is not 500,000 in the US as we all painfully know. But but, therefore- but Jason, it's 500,000 US. So they get, yeah. so yeah, so 500,000, yeah, so 250 point. US yeah. each. That's correct, yeah. Exactly. And too often the numbers applied in Canadian dollars and we don't do the conversions. So it's not quite as bad, but it is a moving number that depends on the exchange rate at the time of sale. So that is also something else to keep in mind. Yeah, you've heard you've heard my uh, Canadian dollar joke. The dollar fluctuates, it flux down, it flux up. It's been flucking up pretty good here recently. So there you go. <laughs> so let's talk about this the other way. Let's talk about uh, people who basically decide to go to you know they go to Florida, they go to Arizona, wherever it is, and they say, "Oh, it's lovely here. I'd like to buy a place." What are the best practices around that? Like, what are what should they be concerned about, and what are the best practices about how to do that? And we're talking about both. They're American citizens. I think it's less of a concern. But let's talk about Canadian citizens in particular who don't maybe don't have U.S. exposure. It sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier and related to estate taxes, income taxes. Um, what's the use of the property? So if you're if you're a Canadian going down and buying property in the U.S. and you're going to be using it for personal purposes, there's no income tax implication on that property until you ultimately become an angel. You both die. Somebody dies or you ultimately sell the property. So it can be very easy to establish a property. The question becomes, you know, how do you title it? Do you title it joint on a joint tenants for twice survivorship basis? You have it in, in sole ownership and use a beneficiary deed to deal with estate planning issues. If you've got large estate tax exposure because of the value of your worldwide estate, does it make sense to hold it through a Canadian company and look at the implications related to that through a partnership or through a trust? So it really depends on, again, a number of different factors. If you, if you are the traditional Canadian snowbird, and your joint worldwide estates, let's say $5 million, it might just be pretty straightforward to go down and acquire it on a married joint basis, enjoy your property, and then deal with the tax consequences if there are any when you become an, when, you, when you ultimately sell the property. One of the things that's important to note that for estate planning purposes, if you're going to go ahead and acquire property on a joint married joint tenants with a survivorship basis with your spouse, that I often recommend because we have this rule in the US called the tracing rule. So the presumption is if you own a property jointly with somebody, that 50% should be attributed to your estate and the other 50% to the to the other uh, owner's estate. It doesn't work that way under these tracing rules, particularly for estate planning purposes. You've got to prove that the decedent owned that property. So what I often recommend is, is when you write a check for the purchase and work with the title company officer, the escrow agency officer, that you write either two checks, you know, one for half from, uh, from, from dad, one from mom, or make sure it comes from a joint account that you can prove. And I just say, just make a make a copy of that check, put it in your sort of estate planning folder to prove that if there's a requirement to file a non-residential tax, tax return and you're reconciling the value of that property and the ownership of it, you've got the, the proof of that. So again, uh, and we have an article on our blog site that talks about the ways that one might choose to own property in the US as a non-resident, the pros and cons of each of those strategies. If you go ahead and you're going to go down there and rent the property, different story. Uh, typically what often happens is you're going to have, well, you look at the ownership of that, there's still going to be estate tax uh, planning requirements related to that if somebody were to become an angel, but there's going to be an income tax filing requirement as well. And so a lot, a lot of clients, particularly Canadian clients, forget to find out is that, well, I'm not earning the money. I've seen this all the time and you're just shaking your head. So you know this as well. Exactly. Well, I'm not earning the money in Canada, so I don't have to include it in my T1. Yes, you do. Uh, yeah. So you've got to file a, 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 ten, a non-resident return if you're engaged in effectively a trader business, you're renting property down there. And um, there's two ways to deal with that. You can have withholding at source or to file a return. And generally, it's most people's interest, best interest to file a return. So you pick up the gross income, you deduct any ordinary reasonable expenses from that property. There's a requirement 
government to mandatory, you have to mandatorily, is that a word? You have to depreciate the property for U.S. purposes. So uh, what happens is in many cases, you might actually have a net, not a net income, but a, a net loss, but you still have to file a return. So it's a 1040NR with Schedule E, which is the profit loss statement related to the rental property. And you have to file that return on an annual basis. And then in Canada, you have to reconcile everything in Canadian dollars and pick it up. So in many cases, you'll have a net loss for US purposes in many cases because of the mandatory depreciation deduction. And in Canada, you might have a net income. And of course, you can't take a foreign tax credit in Canada because you can pay any US tax on that, but you have to do that. Another area where a lot of Canadians forget is that this is a TLM35 filing requirement. If the value of that property is more than $100,000 and it generates income, you've got to file the foreign income verification statement with your CRA tax return with your T1. So that's the TLM35. So make sure you file that because if you don't file that, as you know, Jason, uh, CRA is not going to give you some relief. The ignorance is no excuse for the law from their perspective. So you get spanked with a penalty for not filing that form. So so there's some compliance requirements that have to come into play there. And, and that's just uh, something that we, that we counsel clients on. And we've got an article on our blog site that speaks to that stuff too. So, And then I think the other big, big issue related to, to this, which is a pain in the, in the butt. And I, before we finish, I do want to talk about some pain in the butt stuff that we need to think about from an IRS and CRA perspective is there's going to be a withholding tax requirement that could come into play here when a Canadian ultimately sells their property. And that process can be very, very timely and in a big, big payment. But just as it is to get a clearance certificate when a non-resident sells real property in Canada, files a T2062, is waiting for the 116s, it's a pain in the butt. But it's something yeah. that people need to be aware of um, yeah. when they sell properties a non-resident of either country. It's also a trap. I mean, I think the, you know, you you know this as well as I do, that there's an entire like sub-industry of lawyers in the U.S., warning people to, you know, hold this stuff in trust to avoid the probate issues. And, and, you know, rightly so it's two years out, but you know, where I've had several clients come back in a huff and a need to do this. And they're like, Oh no, we got, we got to move this into the trust. And it's like, well, you're Canadian also, that's going to be a deemed disposition. And there's a capital gain of X amount and you get to pay that in Canada. Well, the lawyer didn't tell me that. Like, how can that be true? It's like, because the lawyer doesn't care about your Canadian tax issue. Yeah. Right? Well, I, th- I think as a true fiduciary, you know, we have talked to our clients about the pros and cons of everything. And unfortunately, again, a number of accountants and attorneys make their living by selling stuff or suggesting that an entity makes more sense than just to hold it personally. I mean, there are a number of states in the U.S. that have what are called beneficiary deeds or transfer on death deeds. I had a couple that unfortunately dad passed away in Hawaii, but when I did this estate plan and they're Canadian citizens, but they own some, some property in Hawaii, we went ahead and we developed the estate plan. We chose because of the, there's some, some, um, some benefits that were available in Hawaii to set up a transfer and death deed. So they own this property in Maui with a transfer and death deed so that, uh, and then we had their Canadian will in Canada structured with a spousal trust there. So that when, uh, when one of them died, that the decedent's interest was not going to form part of the surviving spouse's estate. So no, so we were able to reduce us estate tax exposure if she became an angel, but very easy. We, did, we avoided probate there because now what happens is that her interest, um, his interest, the decedents just did not have to go through probate. It ultimately went to her. Now And then we redid her estate plan as well. And now she's got transfer death deeds for her kids. Now, if you've got good kids who are smart, responsible, that may make some sense, but you got to rejig your estate plan accordingly. But again, sometimes it may make sense to hold assets on a joint basis and then have transfer and death deeds after that. But again, I, I'm, I'm not going to argue with somebody who may, a trust may make sense in certain cases, a partnership or a- one hundred percent. But it's the implications on both sides of the border. Yeah. That's the yeah. issue. That too often, you know, it's like it's like up here too. People say this is what works in Canada. That's great, but you have two sets of rule books to play with. That's the challenge. 
I spoke at a presentation on behalf of one of the larger banks here in Canada in the US a number of years ago. And I was speaking all this stuff. And a guy grabbed me at the end of the presentation. And a lawyer in Florida had charged him $5,000 to set up a trust to hold his property in Mesa and to avoid probate. Here's the deal. The guy's estate was, his worldwide estate was a million and a half dollars worldwide. Yeah. And the value of his property in, in Mesa was $250,000. No estate tax. Probate in Arizona is not a big deal, but he, this guy charged him $5,000 to have this entity in place to like, it just doesn't make sense. Like, uh, the guy got shafted, unfortunately. Yeah. Like I said, there's a sub industry that basically does all this stuff and they have their web, they have their seminars and no one wants to pay tax on death and everybody wants an easy estate and it's an easy sell, unfortunately, fortunately and unfortunately, because it's merit, it's merited in many, re, in many ways. But as we just pointed out, you know, they're not there to consult on these issues. So one uh, more uh, topic to wrap up, I think it's just, I'm, we're focusing on the big general ones that most people face. And this is the PFIC issue. And there's still, I still encounter Still to this day, basically people saying you shouldn't own anything other than secure. If you're an American living in Canada, don't own any mutual funds or ETFs. You should just own nothing but securities because it is uh, tax burdensome or just you can't you, you can't without knowing. Speak to me about what the reasoning for that is and how that is dealt with. So you're again, back to the whole TFSA issue, you're going to find two camps, one that are pro 8621 and, and others that are not. There's some pretty smart guys in Canada, some pretty smart cross-border tax lawyers that, that we know very well that have taken the position that most Canadian, the Canadian mutual funds uh, that are corporations or trusts are not PFIX, um, and therefore 8621s are required. We've taken that position for many years. Other practitioners have not, and again, to each his own. So we effectively go ahead and file a statement in the return. We pick up all of the income. We do all the foreign reporting that's required. Most of the um, you know ETFs and mutual fund companies in Canada have got smart about this, and they have different, mm-hmm. different viewpoints as well. Um, and you'll find that there are QEFs, qualifying electing fund statements that are provided as for the taxpayer if they, they choose to go that route. But uh, again, it's it's a, it's a debate. I've got papers I've sent off to folks. I've, I've heard you know, other practitioners' positions and things of that nature. I mean, when the PFIC rules came in back in the 70s, and I, in, the, in the 70s- And most people ignore them born, and continue. <laughs> I was alive, but you, before you were born. You know, the, the, the logic there was to try to go ahead and, and, and spank those folks who are investing in the Caymans or uh, yeah. the Barbados or whatever. So, you know, Canada is a offshore jurisdiction, for, for example. Um, the net was cast rather wide here. And so a lot of practitioners believe that that's the case. I have personally, in all my years, never seen either through a streamlined disclosure or going back and filing returns where this has been, been the case. But again, with our clients, we talk about the pros and cons of this. Like, but I have seen clients who have a nil result and have their tax returns done, and they may have you know, 10 mutual funds, the cost of preparing that return, it's crazy. Where the net tax result's not, not really going to change. So it's, uh, you know, so we're not going to, we don't want to argue with people about this, but we do yeah. want to make them aware of the pros and cons. And, and there just are ways to simplify the account. Like you don't have to, do you need 10 different holdings, right? Like, is this not more, can this not be accomplished through one or a handful as yeah. opposed to creating, you know, this, this, this make work task. So yeah. And you know, one of the things you keep on coming back to, and we're going to close on this thought is that, you know, there's debate on this and you're not going to, you're not going to, you know, you've had, out, you've had these arguments out there and different people's interpretations and that kind of language may seem a little bit weird to people hearing that in that way. It's like the taxes a bunch of rules. Yes, tax is a bunch of rules. Tax is a bunch of rules in Canada, tax is a bunch of rules in the US. And there's this tiny little book that, or tiny little document that deals with cross-border issues, they call the tax treaty, but there's a million and one different ways that these two things don't line up. And it's open to debate and it's open to interpretation. And frankly, a lot of these things are just issues that neither government ever wanted to create or cares about. 
Yeah. But they are so they're looking at their tax law. They're not looking at everybody else's and the implications for that, uh, as we've seen with many of the U.S. Uh, filing requirements. But at the end of the day, this is the issue: is that this is open to interpretation as long as it's justifiable to some degree. I, you're absolutely right. I mean, planning—it's planning. So it's, but again, it's a matter of discussing these issues with the clients and and kind of running the numbers and going through the pros and cons. And uh, again, we're not doing anything that's evasive or or, or illegal. It's an interpretation. You know, we've never had a situation where we're fully disclosing uh, the position that we're taking on the returns that are filed. We're not excluding any return or any uh, any income. We're just reporting it a little bit differently. And, and again, some practitioners would disagree with the position that I'm taking, that we're taking. But uh, again, uh, you know, the other thing too, I think is important to note is that for the American in Canada, again, I've been doing this for 35 years. I'm, I am an enrolled agent with the IRS. It's not the IRS we have to worry so much about. It's really CRA. Um, CRA makes life far more miserable for clients, taxpayers than the IRS whatever could ever be. And one of the pet peeves I have is, you know, the process, and I, I have a blog, an article I wrote on this uh, recently related to the, the administrative requirements that we have for CRA and IRS as a taxpayer. So for the American that moves to Canada, I'm sorry, the American that moves to Canada, get used to the fact that if you've got social security, they're going to ask you why you're taking 50% deduction. If you're getting a distribution from your IRA and you're paying RMD and you're, you're going to take a foreign tax credit, they're going to ask where that came from. If you're making, if you've been making charitable donation in Canada, they're going to ask for receipts. If you've got medical expenses, they're going to ask for receipts. That does not happen on the U.S. side. So it's just a, a far more onerous, a painful process in Canada to deal with CRA. It's just part of our assessment review process. And so we like to counsel clients, like, just get used to the fact that it, because of these sources of income that you do have, and because of the deductions you're entitled to under the treaty, and the fact that you're taking foreign tax credits for taxes paid on the U.S. side, that they're going to poke and prod you. And yes, I understand that that didn't happen on the U.S. side when you live down there or when you're filing returns. But get used to the fact that it will happen in Canada, and, and it's something we have to just work through and understand. And that's a big issue that uh, that we that clients that move to Canada from the U.S. Uh, have never seen while they've been in the U.S. It's yeah, like, I mean, it's interesting. As a business owner, you get used to these sort of things, right? More and more every year, CRA taps you on the shoulder and asks you, "Excuse me, where did this expense come from?" Like it's pretty common now. And at the end of the day. We have always to remember that part of the job when we file taxes anywhere is to justify and support what it is we're doing. And frankly, it is a pain. It is a massive pain, but we got to live with it. And unfortunately, if you are living across borders, it's a reality because those two authorities are not talking to each other the way that internal authority would to another department. And even then it's still shoddy. So with that, thank you very much, Terry. Appreciate this update and I appreciate going back to these fundamentals. I'm sure this is going to be helpful. And I, I specifically targeted some of the more common questions I get in this space from either advisors or or, uh, or clients. So glad you helped me clear this well, up. They're, they're, they're controversial. I mean, I, some people that will listen to this will will take offense that maybe it's the position that you're on might, I might take, but but again, it's um, it's important that, that clients are, are aware of, uh, of of the pros and cons of each of these uh, these areas. But absolutely, but you did you know, and in, in your fairness, you covered the areas of how it is traditionally done, whether it's whether your opinion is not or is the same or not. So you talked about filing the PFIC forms and the QA and the QEFs. Exactly, like if the accountant wants to default to that, and that's what the client's paying their account for, so be it. But there are other views of this, so totally get it. Terry, where can people find you and find your blog and all these wonderful posts? Well, so our website is is www.cardinalpointwealth.com. So cardinalpointwealth.com. And if you go to blogs, there's lots, lots of stuff that's there. We've got some eBooks there related to moving from Canada to the US, lots of stuff that's there. And then my, my email address is terry at cardinalpointwealth.com. Terry, as always, good, sir. Always a pleasure. Okay. And thank you Very for your well. time. Thanks, Jason. See ya.
So that was today's episode. I hope you enjoyed that and hope that cleared up a number of misconceptions and uh, helped broaden your understanding of what it is to be an American living in Canada or a Canadian buying stuff in the States. So as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.